This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, the war, Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine continues to be bloody and savage. The focus has moved to eastern Ukraine, an area known as the Donbass, which is a region where there has been fighting and death since 2014 when the Russians moved in there. And the two regions, Luhansk and Donetsk, make up the Donbass. They are at the heart of industrial Ukraine very important region. There are lots of what are known as Russian separatists. These are people who identify as Russian. And the second largest city in Ukraine, uh, Kharkiv, is in that region. And yesterday, the Russians shelled Kharkiv. And their aim, as usual these days, was uh, civilians, uh, apartment blocks, were shelled, schools, and six people are known to have died and many others are missing. To see how this war is going now, we're joined by Senator Tom Clonan. Tom was, of course, an Irish soldier. He was deployed in uh, South Lebanon as an officer commanding Irish troops under the UN mission. And during that deployment, Tom witnessed uh, an Israeli operation called Operation Grapes of Wrath against Hezbollah which culminated in the massacre of refugees at the village of Cana uh, in April 1996. So Tom knows about the ugly side of war and the practical side of it as well. Tom, this war has taken a curious kind of turn. The Russians being rebuffed or repelled in certain areas, for example, the idea that they might take the capital, Kiev, is, uh, is not on for the moment. And they've gone back uh, and focused on eastern uh, Ukraine. And they're also, their focus is artillery, shelling, stuff that is really difficult to repel. Yeah, it's, um, it's a tale of two phases so far. I mean, um, very shortly, we're going to arrive at the five months period of this, of this war. So it started on the 24th of February. And there was an initial phase of about six weeks from the 24th of February to the 7th of April, where the Russians, you know, jumped off from their starting points across the border in Russia and into 
into Donbass and they, they made a, a drive at Kiev. And that first six weeks was Putin's kind of very ambitious plan to topple the regime, decapitate the regime, uh, get rid of Zelensky and his MPs and put in a puppet regime and just take the country in one uh, decisive sweep. That failed completely. Uh, and a couple of unanticipated things happened, which we'll talk about uh, today, in that NATO, it, it galvanized NATO. Yes. Putin and Lavrov had, had perceived NATO as being weak, particularly after the Trump administration, which, which caused serious and deep divisions in NATO. Uh, they also thought that the European Union were weak and divided after Brexit, but actually the European Union galvanized itself, perhaps uh, you know, after the the experience with the pandemic and COVID, that the European Union was kind of, I suppose, kind of geared up to act collectively, yes. and, and they did so. So the, uh, I suppose, for an intelligence officer, an ex-intelligence officer, Putin miscalculated. But we're now into this grinding second phase, which began around the 7th of April, where uh, Putin has returned to what he calls his special military operation in Donbass. And so over the last 12 weeks, uh, with the fall of uh, Severodonetsk and Lishyhansk, the, the Russians have now effectively taken all of Luhansk. At the beginning of the war, they, they, they controlled maybe 40, 50 percent of that province or that oblast, but now they control all of it. And they have now turned their attention to uh, Donetsk. And they're really concentrating their fire now down and around the southern part, around Kherson, Melitopol. They'll try to move south from Lishyhansk to take Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, and then down towards... Uh, they're, they're also moving up towards Kherson, Melitopol, and shelling places like Mikolaev, uh, Kerviri, Zaporizhia. So they're really focusing now on taking that last part. But as we observed earlier... They, the Russians are beginning to come under pressure in terms of manpower uh, because their losses have been very, very significant to, to maintain this effective fighting force. They're also running short of ammunition and uh, armoured fighting vehicles and tanks. And the Western supply of weapons to the, to, to the Ukrainian military is also coming under pressure. So I, I, I would anticipate that once the Russians, and they, and they will, once they've taken um, Donetsk and they can claim that they have a victory yes. in Donbass, I think you're going to see a major operational pause uh, until the Russians decide what to do next. Yeah, they could use that, I suppose, as you say, to claim a victory and then try to negotiate a situation where they hold on to that. But uh, under Zelensky um, and his leadership... Ukraine are unlikely to go into negotiations, as it were, although they may face pressure from NATO to negotiate. Uh, yes, the, the, there is one very curious feature of this uh, conflict, Tom, and I wonder if you could help us. Yesterday, for example, uh, Putin lost another 12 of his senior officers. He's lost an awful lot of uh, upwards 30 or 40 generals in this. And yesterday, too, it emerged that there had been a serious failure of their S-400 defense system, which U.S. missiles, HIMARS, had breached. And they have their own problems. Also, it is reported that some of their battalions are, are weary and tired because they've been fighting since February 24th and are exhausted. So it's not all 
sunshine on the Russian side of this. No, they're experiencing severe difficulties on the ground. Um, there are many estimates as to the numbers of Russians killed in this war. Um, a figure of about 30,000 seems to be the, the generally accepted figure. That's 30,000 killed. Uh, killed in action. Now, to put that in context, uh, the, the Russians lost about, I think it was between six and 9,000 troops in their long occupation in Afghanistan. Yeah, it was a 10 year occupation almost. Uh, so, so to lose, to lose 30,000, uh, uh, in, in, in five months is an extraordinary, uh, attrition rate. And to add to that, then you've got many multiples of that who would be seriously injured of polytrauma. Uh, you know, multiple injuries, disabled, uh, you know, for life and, and the burden that that's going to place on the Russian state and its, its various republics. So they started out with about 170,000 troops. Uh, they've lost, you know, based on those figures, at least half of that effective fighting force. And, you know, the international military convention would be that if you lose one third of your affecting, of your effective fighting force through deaths or injuries, um, you're no longer an effective fighting force. So they've gone beyond that point. And that's why you have all these generals and senior officers down on the front lines trying to push their troops forward, uh, trying to, you know, <laughs> get them to actually continue to sustain those losses. But interestingly, uh, so on the kind of political level, this has put pressure on Putin because to really, to refill those uh, missing ranks, there is the question of, a declaration of war and a general mobilization of, of, of the Russian military. Which he hasn't and done he, yet, correct? No, he has stepped, stopped short of that. And I don't know that there would be uh, support for that in, in the Kremlin amongst those people who enable him. Well, not yet. But interestingly, um, the Russian parliament, the Duma, has set aside July the 25th um, for a very special meeting. They haven't announced what it is they're going to talk about, but they have said in very general terms that they're going to have an emergency meeting of the Juma to discuss um, the situation, as they refer to it, and the direction that they need to take uh, to overcome it. So what they have been doing in, instead of that is, it's been referred to as a shadow mobilization. So they have been going into the North Caucasus republics, Dagestan, Ingushetia, Kalmykia, and they have mobilized about 40 or 50,000 um, what they call contract soldiers. These are veterans, uh, yes. many of whom would have had uh, experience in neighboring Georgia in, in that conflict in 2008 and in the subsequent occupation of one third of Georgia's territory. So these are contract soldiers from those North Caucasus republics who have a lot of experience of dealing with uh, Russia's most modern weapon systems, if you like. So these are to use an awful expression, kind of oven-ready contract troops that are, are being pushed into what they call scratch uh, battalions uh, and rifle brigades to shore up the, the fighting in Ukraine. And they're being offered, uh, you know, very attractive salaries. But interestingly, similarly to what Donald Rumsfeld and uh, Bush did with the, the contractors during the, the war in Iraq, where they, where they actually placed... Um, mercenaries or contractors yes. onto the U.S. Department of Defense uh, establishment. Um, the Russians are doing a similar thing with these contract soldiers or, or mercenaries, if you like, uh, and they don't have any pension rights or any sort of um, kind of normal uh, right 
serving soldiers who are protected by law in, in the Russian Federation. Um, they, they don't have those protections. So this is a kind of a desperate move. And that's why, you know, you're in, in the confirmed death cases. So there's been a lot of international monitoring, of, you know, trying to identify actual individuals who've been killed, Russian individuals. And most of the dead that they have identified uh, definitively, about 3,600, are from these kind of republics and other far-flung republics within the Russian Federation, you know, where, so, so yes. the, 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 the kind of metropolitan educated youth, uh, who are called up, they're not really in the firing line as yet. So my, my guess is that, uh, you know, the Russians will take Donetsk. It took them 12 weeks to take Luhansk. It's, they, they've got a timeline here that they've got from their perspective. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating this or supporting this. I'm just trying to look at it from their perspective. They'll try to take all of Donetsk within the next six to eight weeks because that's all the time and space that they have available to them, ammunition. And then they need to have an operational pause. Otherwise, they're going to have to get into the scenario of mass mobilization and a declaration of all out war. And that would have far reaching and unanticipated outcomes. But on a political level, the mood music has changed somewhat. So uh, Putin, uh, at the beginning of this conflict, was you know very angry. He's been quoting Peter the Great as his inspiration for invading and, and restoring Russia's borders. But uh, he left the country in the last couple of weeks for the first time <clears throat> since uh, before COVID and has now presented this new sort of reasonable uh, face to the world and in talks with uh, President uh, Erdogan of Turkey last week, he announced that uh, he was prepared for Turkey to come in as, and, and Turkey is the largest standing army in NATO, they're members of NATO. He said that with the agreement of the United Nations, that Turkey could come in and, and, and monitor um, a, a, a sort of a settled state of affairs in Donbass to make sure that the Russians were behaving themselves. And he said, in, the, in that kind of context, the Kremlin would be happy to guarantee that uh, substantial amounts of grain and other materials could be exported from Ukrainian ports unencumbered yes. and that they would demine the area. So already he's beginning to hint at, you know, maybe some sort of a, a deal beyond um the, the the current situation maybe a a, a, a pause uh, a kind of a, a negotiated settlement that would bring this conflict to an end now obviously as you were saying there this would be very difficult for zelensky to accept they're not going to accept this and he has been saying in recent days uh, along with his uh, defense minister alexei reznikov that they are prepared to arm 1 million ukrainian yes. with with western weapons now that's, that's a very uh, sort of far-fetched claim on, on the part of the Ukrainians, but they do have approximately 400,000 uh, armed ar Ukrainian armed forces veterans who've, who've served since 2014, who would still be reasonably within military serving age and who would have experience, you know, combat experience of fighting in, in, the, in that asymmetrical conflict. But the big question is, would the West be prepared to continue to, to, to supply them and support that war, would the West be able to do that? Because, uh, you know, Russia is exerting pressure in other, way, in other ways with Nord Stream 1. Yes, the, the, which is the being gas cut pipeline. off for, for one week, they say, uh, to be yes. serviced. But if, it was, if it's not returning and there's a possibility, then all of Western Europe, Germany in particular, would be in trouble. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One big question that's raised in the Financial Times today and the Irish Times is carrying it, it's a piece with two, two bylines in it. And the question is, is the West running out of ammunition to supply Ukraine? It's a, it's a very thought-provoking piece because the West is, isn't geared up for this kind of warfare anymore. And the, there is a possibility that what the Ukrainians need, high-tech artillery, for example, um, the, the West can't supply it quickly enough. Yeah, this has happened before uh, during the, 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 the Gulf War and, and the invasion of Iraq and so on. The, the U.S. military began to run out of cruise missiles, Tomahawk missiles. But the military-industrial complex is many things, but yes. one of the things it is, it's nimble. And there are people making a lot of money out of this conflict. Um, so there's a shortage of Stinger missiles. Uh, Raytheon are saying that it, it's going to take them a while to replace the 1,300 Stinger missiles that have already been fired against Russian forces in Ukraine. Um, but, you know, NATO... Just to put it in context, Russia spends approximately 66 billion per annum on its defense munitions and military. China, 293 billion. Yes. But that's dwarfed by what NATO spends. NATO spends 1.1 trillion dollars per annum. 1.1 trillion on weapons. And each of the European Union states that are NATO members will have, you know, first line reserves of ammunition. They do have stocks. 
and that that could be mobilized to to resupply the Ukrainian military. The question is, um, what where is the tipping point there where you go from supporting uh, uh, the Ukrainian government to defend itself against Russia's aggression, or actually then becoming actively involved in the conflict ourselves, either as the European Union uh, or as as NATO, and the. You know, there's been a lot of analysis as to the direction that the conflict has taken. So this has changed warfare. We're now back to kind of World War Two or even World War One style uh, combat where you have fixed positions, massive artillery barrages, tank battles. And I'm not so sure about that. Um, if you cast your mind back to the, the Falklands conflict, um, the, the Argentinians sank the uh, Atlantic conveyor in Falkland Sound and all of the uh, parachute regiments, vehicles and hard fighting vehicles went to the bottom of the sea. And so the, the Brits went ashore in the Falklands on foot yes. and you had actually trench warfare. And people felt, well, this has changed uh, the, the face of international combat. But it didn't. That was just based on the particular circumstances of that uh, small localized conflict. And that's happened here as well. The reason why there's a reliance on artillery, the Russians are trying to seize ground yes. from, and, and it's about uh, occupying and holding the, 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 the territorial boundaries of Luhansk and the Donetsk. And they're doing it, uh, in the face of huge losses. It kind of, it's, it's politically motivated from a military perspective. Based on the losses they have uh, uh, suffered, it, it doesn't make sense to do what they're doing. Like they're actually destroying the towns of of Mikhailov, Kriviri, Dnipro, Petrovsk, yes. uh, Lishyhansk, uh, even their jump off points at Lyman and uh, at at at, at least uh, you know they, they've actually destroyed the towns almost completely. Like Izium, which is their main concentration point has been 90% of its buildings and infrastructure have been destroyed. So they're actually yes. destroying the entire place to, to just hold it. And d it, artillery and um, armour, are artillery particularly, is the cheapest form yes. of directed munition. And and to just, so for, for, for the listeners to understand, for artillery, what you need is either a drone or a forward artillery observer to get eyes on the target, you know, for 40 kilometres ahead. And then they just identified the target, they radio back on a secure encrypted net, and the artillery battery fires an adjusting round. The observer or the drone then adjusts that, it might be forward 200 metres, right 200 metres, and then they can bring a huge barrage down to bear, multiple, multiple batteries of artillery to completely and utterly destroy uh, buildings, military positions, you know, and it's just, it's cheap, and you can do it at a distance, uh, you know, without exposing your frontline troops unnecessarily to the, the kind of casualties they've been experiencing at the hands of the Ukrainians. And yes, the Ukrainians just, just have condemned this and described it as absolute terrorism because it's it's generally aimed at residential uh, areas, maybe hospitals, maybe schools. I mean, it, this is terrorism, isn't it? Well, it, it's contrary to the Geneva Conventions because yeah, the, it's not soldiers on soldiers. Well, the Geneva Conventions say that if, if you invade a country, then you have an obligation as the occupying power to evacuate all civilians from your target areas and to provide safe evacuation corridors. 
And also there's a requirement that you do not target civilian objects, such as schools, hospitals, buildings, apartments. But I suppose the reality of modern warfare is that you you fight in and amongst the civilian population and de facto the civilian population becomes a target in and of itself. And there is an element of, you know, ethnic cleansing and the the deliberate targeting. Uh, You know, Ukrainians are being taken out of um, the occupied zones to filtration camps, so-called filtration camps in Russia. They've accelerated the... uh, the, the the Russian passport program to try and get as many people who are willing to to adopt Russian citizenship and this whole region, um, Eamon, as you know, has this awfully tragic history of mass deportations. You know, yes. millions of ethnic Germans were deported from this area, um, hundreds of thousands of Poles and Jews were targeted in programs and in ethnic cleansing and mass killings in the past. Uh, so, what what's happening today? contains echoes of, of, of those deportations, uh, mass movement of populations along ethnic nationalistic lines, and, of course, the scorched earth policy that we saw of World War II in that region of destroying all of the critical infrastructure, the destruction of, uh, you know, grain silos, agricultural equipment, uh, theft of yes. um, fridges, washing machines. It's, 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 a dir- it's a very, very dirty conflict, but... It has a limit of exploitation. This this cannot continue indefinitely. So the question is, you know, what happens next? I would say immediately the focus for Putin and the Kremlin will be the complete taking of Donetsk. And that will involve the destruction of places like uh, Kramatorsk, uh, Slavyansk, Kherson, Litopol, probably over to Mykolaiv. The risk would be when they, when they do get to the river Dnepro, will they stop there? The Russians, after an operational pause, might be tempted to start moving north up the Dnepro River, which effectively cuts Ukraine in half, head towards cities like Kremenchuk, Cherkasy, and maybe have another go at Kiev or perhaps even move towards Odessa. And, and that's what, what Putin has been dangling in front of Zelensky and the international community saying, if you let us pause now, you know, we, we, we will leave Odessa alone and allow Ukraine to have a port and freedom to export uh, through the port of Odessa un, 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 unimpeded. They've taken or withdrawn or have been forcibly removed from Snake Island. They're offering to demine the area. Uh, so it's just how much pain would Zelensky accept at this point uh, and how much can either side continue to endure in this conflict. Now, just two final questions, Tom. We're very grateful to you for enlightening us uh, this morning. Putin wrote an essay in the summer which goes to the heart, it seems to me, of his claims. He wrote an essay saying, in effect, that the Russians and the Ukrainians were one people and the idea that Ukraine might be an independent nation was illegitimate. So that's where he's psychologically coming from. The other question I want to ask you is, uh, Iran yesterday said they could supply hundreds of drones to the Russians. Is that significant militarily? But the, the, the first question, I suppose, goes to the heart of this and how, how long it may take to uh, resolve. Yeah, so... 
Putin is mobilizing this rhetoric, this kind of Russian nationalism, this uh, yes. echoes of Peter the Great and the imperial ambitions to restore Russia to its original borders. But if you look at this uh, coldly, he, he's one of the world's wealthiest men, backed by yes. other wealthy men, you know, oligarchs, and they're just seizing Donbass because of its, 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 you know, resources, its fossil fuels, its mineral resources, its 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 industrial potential. It's they're they're seizing it by force at gunpoint and getting the the poorest people, you know, the the, the young, the, the the most disadvantaged people in those uh, North Caucasus republics to fight and die for these elderly wealthy men. And he's mobilizing all of that rhetoric to 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 justify it and to get support from the Russian public. But this is why I think it's really important. The Ukrainian people themselves, as expressed through Zelensky's government and their willingness to fight and resist, shows that they're not one and the same. Yes. They want autonomy. They don't want to live under the Russian yoke. So I think it's really important that um, Ukraine be admitted to the European Union as quickly as possible. And that will to some extent, call Putin's bluff, because this conflict will grind to a halt uh, or even into a stalemate when Russia consolidates its positions, reinforces itself and, and doesn't move forward. It, it'll then be a war of attrition. You know, will the Ukrainians be able to mount any meaningful counterattacks? I don't know. I don't know if, if, if they, they, they can do that just now. And um, so it really depends on the international community's uh, appetite for some sort of a deal at this point. But but with any such deal, with any such operational pause, people will be looking at the Kremlin, looking at Putin and asking themselves, well, what next? If he, if he survives this adventure and if he can consolidate his, his victory, this special military operation to hold all of Donbass, the question will be, what next? You know, will he in the next five or six years make another uh, attempt to take Odessa, to get to Transnistria, to Moldova, you know, to have his troops march into Chisinau. That would be one question. Would he make an, another attempt, as I was saying earlier, to move north along the Dnieper River towards Kremenchuk, Cherkasy and Kiev? Or would there be a, a sort of a, a status quo or a status antebellum or yes. status where, the, you know, the rest of Ukraine would have a massive, like, Marshall Plan investment program, yes. become full members of, of the European Union. Th these are the questions. In relation to Iran, I mean, uh, Putin and Lavrov built up a, a very powerful relationship with the Iranians in their uh, collaboration on Syria to support uh, Assad's regime. Yes. You know, Russian aircraft were allowed to refuel in Iranian uh, air force bases. They were allowed to fly through uh, Iranian airspace to conduct high-level bombing raids all uh, Syria. The Ukrainians have had huge successes with the Turkish supplied zone uh, drones, the Bayraktar TB2 drones, which which have a range of 186 miles. And um, now the Russians have been learning and have begun to jam and use electronic countermeasures and electronic counter countermeasures or ECCMs to try and uh, get around that threat. But I, I do think, though, that based on the number of troops, even with this shadow mobilization of contract soldiers or uh, mercenaries, if you like, you still can't really do more. The, the military options open to Putin just now don't really 
allow much more than their consolidation of their hold on Donbass if in the next six to eight weeks they, they take all of Donetsk. Because anything further than that, for now, would require that general mobilization. And I will, think Putin, will the key question be, if the West and NATO and Americans, but they will have to persuade Zelensky, um, and he doesn't seem, and neither does do his people seem uh, inclined to give Putin any kind of victory. So that may well be a decisive discussion, shall we say. Yeah, but, you know, there are two uh, phrases like, this could become a fait accompli. You know, yes. this is force majeure. Putin has taken it. Yes. If if the Ukraine mobilize, as uh, they claim they might, one million troops to retake Donbass, yes. then, then what you're looking at there is a war of annihilation. Yes. And I don't know that the West has the appetite okay. for a yes. war of annihilation because, you know, last week uh, I read that the, the, the Bundestag in Germany have been identifying large public buildings all over uh, Germany that can be heated in the winter for uh, thousands and thousands of elderly people and, and vulnerable people and people who are, because they, they're anticipating or emergency yes. planning for uh, a, the, the, you know, a lack of, uh, of Russian gas over, over the winter. The EU27 have finally agreed to ban Russian oil and gas imports, except for pipeline imports, because they recognize that countries like Hungary and others just cannot function without yes. that Russian oil and gas. So Putin has us, uh, I suppose, he's been using all of the methods that are there at his disposal, political, strategic, and military to to put pressure on the West to accept his special military operation and, and for him to save face and be able to turn around to the, the Russian people and say that he's achieved a victory in Donbass. But I think, um, you know, th- 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 there's a number of key lessons here. The, the Russian military has shown themselves not to be the Red Army. Um, they, they're no longer the threat they might have presented to countries like yes. fin- Finland and Sweden. Um, so, you know, there, there'll have to be compromises on all sides. Okay, Tom, we're really grateful to you. Senator Tom Clonan is uh, always a very welcome guest and speaks with real authority on this tragic uh, situation in Ukraine. We're grateful to Tom, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.